so what are we doing here? In the world of watches, the past 18 months have felt like five years. And if you're like myself, it's not that you don't love watches, it's just that there's so much noise out there. It feels like everyone is a watch guy, and every watch feels like it's 10 times the price anyway. So what are we doing here? I get tons of DMs about watches regarding how to collect, where to start, should I get a birth year watch, what's the deal with that brand, and more. I've been lucky to bump into a few experts over the years who are not only some of the nicest folks in the industry, but also some of the most knowledgeable. So we're talking watches. Joining me is Eric Wind of Wind Vintage and Rob Kaplan of Topper Jewelers. Eric Wind worked at Christie's, where he was a vice president and has been featured in a number of publications, from the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, every abbreviation, you name it. Most people now know him from Wind Vintage, where he deals with some of the most rare watches on earth. Rob Kaplan of Topper Jewelers has been an authorized dealer for the past 20 years at his family-run store that started in 1940 in the heart of Silicon Valley. These gentlemen know watches. They've seen that era, they're ready for the existing one. We're going to be discussing the recent trade show announcements from Watches and Wonders, the post-COVID world, where to begin if you're getting into watches, and why so many of us are just so in love with these mechanical marvels. We also answer your questions. From birth year watches, the best watches to get under $2,000, why a vintage watch should stay vintage, and all the questions you wanted to know, and more. I am pleased to present a special episode on the state of watches. First things first, um, watches and wonders. I mean, basically, uh, the past few weeks, all of the watch companies have done digital presentations. I mean, I sat at my computer and watched, um, you know, the Lange presentation that looked like they were in the Matrix room. Um, I mean, everything was digital, and it, it looks like it was a success. I mean, all you know, some some companies had their watches ready like the next day in store. Some are you know are still rolling out, but there's been tons and tons of new releases lately. And I was just curious what your guys' takes have been on them. Uh, you know, Rob, if you want to go first, um, I I think what's important to remember about how Watches of Wonders is versus how say Basel World was four years ago is I think two elements. Number one, I think as a consumer, it is a show that's now an experience that's set up for the person who's watching it on their computer. And it's more of a, st- a direct storyteller as opposed to being, I think, as retail focused, which mm. I think really helps the, 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 the enthusiast get more direct access. And I think that, that the brands are spending a lot more energy doing presentations, speaking directly to the community, I think, in, in a more engaging, interesting way than they had, like, like the long, like the, the thing you're describing, um, you know, it, it's not just, you know, broadcasting someone at a podium in front of a bunch of reporters and somebody to sort of witnessing from a, you know, a, you know, bird's eye view that we're talking production value directly for the consumer. And I, I think, I think that's a lot, I think that makes it more relevant. Uh, the other thing is, even though it might seem like there were a ton of releases, if you compare it to three, four years ago, the percentage of a company's novelties being shown is a much lower percentage than ever before because these companies are all conscious of the incredible amount of relevant coverage that they're able to generate over the course of a whole year. 
And the extent that these companies are really trying to create pieces that have really interesting themes that are worthy of articles to be flushed out. And people can only cover so many stories by any given brand. So for instance, with Brightling, they have a lot of releases that are coming. Um, but they used, uh, they used Watches and Wonder to focus on premier heritage. Um, you know, seven or eight references that I think, you know, were incredibly well received and are, you know, engaging, interesting pieces. Uh, and, you know, they got great articles just on these references. Whereas maybe five years ago, they would have introduced a broad ranging collection on the first day of Basel and, you know, in Hall One. So um, I, I think people are reading and enjoying these things now more than ever. Yeah. Eric, what about you? Yeah, I agree 110%. It's the brands reaching out to individuals now rather than to just retailers, you know, that would fly over to Switzerland and visit with them. Um, obviously, the whole situation has changed with Basel World basically being defunct, et cetera. So, um, and then add obviously the pandemic to the mix and it's been a very interesting time, but I think it's smart. It was natural for brands to space out their releases throughout the year rather than have them all come out the same week and then, you know, overload and get lost in the shuffle what they were trying to do. So I think we'll see more releases throughout the year as well um, beyond the specific focus on certain brands like Brat Breitling with the Premier line, et cetera. And, and just for, for listeners' awareness, what was it like before this? Because I know, I mean, and just to kind of like set the stage, for myself, I remember a lot of these things were closed to the public. Uh, images weren't allowed to be shown. Like people would have to sell watches, or, you know, or communicate to their to their clients that, hey, this watch is coming. Are you interested? I can't show you what it looks like. And it feels like everything's kind of hitting at the same time. That's just great for the watch community to to have this direct engagement to the consumer. Yeah, um, I think there's always been a little bit of planning and spacing. And um, even in the Basel World days, there there were always things as retailers that we were shown that weren't available until much later. But still, when um, I would, um, and I, I actually spent a lot of time in Basel World. Um, I was uh, friends with a, a couple of journalists and I got to actually um, walk to some press meetings um, and see what their experience was like. I still feel like brands would still, they wouldn't show the press everything. They would show them curated groups uh, of of collections, but I would say a major brand would probably show press between 10 and 20 novelties in a half hour meeting. And then there'd be like a mad scramble for them to photograph it and cover it all. And I feel like the press, the press is mad, still had a mad scramble and they would have more than they could, you know, with a full team could be realistically expected to cover with like a 2000 word article and have it be meaningful. Um, it just wouldn't be, it wouldn't, it just, it just, it, it, unscalable amount of information being thrown at them at, 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 the, at the Basel worlds of past. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I remember going to some of those things and, uh, you know, from like the, uh, whatever SIHH, which was like, you know, what watches and wonders and stuff is kind of evolved into now where you'd show up 
And you basically had, you know, as a journalist, air quote, like you had back-to-back appointments that were about 30 minutes to an hour each. And then right. usually a five to 10 minute break in between appointments, not even always. And with within that, you're you're just getting like pummeled. Yeah, with, with facts and information and presentations. And while they were beautiful and the watches were amazing, I mean, maybe it's because I'm a little bit like emo. Like I would want to sit in some of these things for a few hours at a time and actually wear the watches and, and see how it handles with myself in day to day. And like, I get it, like they just couldn't, they couldn't really do that. But I mean, I would go from like the IWC meeting straight into the Hermes meeting, sitting in the Hermes meeting, thinking about what I saw at IWC, not even listening, you know, sorry, Hermes. But like, you know, th- that was the thing it was just like smacked over the head. And I do like the fact now that I don't think, at least for myself, I don't think I watched a single Watches and Wonders presentation live. And that's no shade to them at all. It's the fact that like, I was able to digest it at my own pace. And I think because of that, there were things I was able to catch that I didn't even, you know, expect that I would have if I was there in person. For example, Hermes, the recent Hermes release, I was like, what the heck is this? This is incredible. You know, I mean, because I got to sit with it and I got, you know, and I have people texting me in the middle of things and, you know, we're kind of, you know, having sidebar comments about, I mean, it was, for me, it was just such a better experience um, than what it had been in the past. So in regards to, some of the recent announcements at Watches and Wonders. Um, what were the things that were the most surprising to you all? Um, Eric, you want to go? I mean, it's the it's a mainstream choice, but the two tone Explorer in thirty six millimeter, of course. <laughs> Everyone's focused on Rolex, but um, that was just kind of funny. But it's it makes sense. I mean, Rolex is trying to move the average price per sale up. So they they want to promote two tone and full gold and platinum as well. So that's their broader strategy. But it's just funny to see the kind of signature austere tool watch get two tone. But they already did it with the Sea Dweller a couple of years ago. So I guess it shouldn't be a surprise. Yeah, I mean they they did two tone subs, right? I mean that it feels yeah, like yeah they do two tone subs. And yeah, they did the Sea Dweller a couple of years ago that drove people crazy, and then now we see the Explorer. Yeah, my favorite thing about any watch release is seeing reactions online where it's extremely polarized. People are like borderline offended over a, re- a release sometimes where yeah. someone's like, yeah. how could they? What what were they thinking over there? Like someone, you know, and then maybe, you know, a lot of these are people that I follow. And then maybe a few weeks later, you see that person has that watch and they're like, you know, I stand corrected. It's it's pretty good. And you're like, yeah, all of them are great. Why don't you just chill out? <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Rob, what about you? Well, I think, um, and this isn't a Watches of Wonder release, but I think the phenomenon you're describing, to me, there's not a watch that I think embodies that more than the the Zenith Chronomaster Sport. And I'm sure as a Rolex enthusiast, um, Eric can appreciate that. Because you would see uh, on the most surface level, you would see someone saying, wait a minute, this is, this is a Daytona. And that's just like, (laughs) that's like the most surface surface level, like thing you could possibly think and like, like on, on Instagram level. And then other people would be like, well, maybe it's better looking. And then wait a minute, it's got an entirely new movement and it's got a complication that the Rolex doesn't have. And then, Oh wait, wait, Zenith made Rolex movements for Rolex in the nineties. 
And wait, they had their own sport line earlier than that called the DeLuca series that was similar. So you, you end up with, with, with people making these realizations that are at the one hand, you know, very, very surface. And then as time goes on, I think people realize that a lot of these releases are these like deep dive fan surface things that people have made. And their initial mm-hmm. impression of just a quick view is just the bare surface edge of all the complexity that can, can be in a piece. Um, and I, I, I think that, like you're saying, people go on these arc journeys of like two or three weeks where they have an initial impression. And um, then there's just this rabbit hole of knowledge about all of these releases. And then the next thing you know, people who went, I don't like it, like you said, it's on their wrist because they've learned all that went into it. Yeah. yeah. So w- would you say the Zenith was the most surprising release for you? Uh, well, the Zenith, it, uh, I think I mean, for Topper, a lot of our releases aren't in the confines of, of Watches of Wonder. And I think as we've discussed in general, um, a, a lot of just in general, Watches of Wonder, even for brands that, that you know, for, for all brands that present there, it's, ju- it's just a snippet because the, the, the Zenith yeah. Chronomaster Sport came out you know, much earlier, but I, that, that was an incredibly impactful watch for Zenith. I would say that was probably the watch that changed. That was probably the single release of this year that changed a company's trajectory more than, than another release. Because I mean, I think Zenith is on fire. That watch is incredibly hard to get. Um, and I, I feel like it shot probably a ton of adrenaline into the company relative to everything else. I mean, there are other companies that had amazing releases, like the new Speedmaster is incredible, is incredibly successful, but people have loved Speedmasters for forever. Right. So uh, I would say that that was probably the most impactful release so far this year. Yeah, I would say, I mean, it, it put the brand on a lot of people's radar that, weren't that you know aware of um you know erica you know it kind of leads me to uh, about that like when you see brands kind of having like a resurgence in some way uh for lack of a better term do you get inquiries or is there like a spike in the vintage stuff like are people like oh i want the the first el primero now like it is does that start yeah. to happen there's definitely a relationship sometimes it lags but it's both the vintage speaking, of course, to the brands, they're usually not the fastest to respond, but then, um, yeah, brands doing strong today definitely helps the vintage, um, and, and neo vintage. So, um, you know, for instance, the new Speedmaster coming out, a bunch of people bought eighties and nineties ones because they wanted the older movement and thought, oh, these are kind of undervalued. And even some people bought the last version of the 1861 movement. They were raiding stores to buy it to just put it away because the new the new watch has a higher retail price. So they were just buying it, and they're like, "I'm just going to keep it unworn and put it in the box and put it in my safe and put it away." Yeah, I mean, I've just seen that, especially with Zodiac. I mean, since you know, like the Sea Wolf and all these things that have popped, a friend of mine was like, "I'm going to start collecting vintage Zodiacs," and I was like, "Wait, really?" I mean, and, which is great. I mean, Doxa is the same, you know, where, where yeah. people want all the the 
you know, you know, all the old subs from there. I mean, it's, it's, it's cool. I mean, it's cool to see that too, versus people just collecting, you know, I don't know, vintage Patek or something. You know I mean? It's, it's great to see that. Um, yeah, definitely. And so, you know, moving on to like, the, you know, the next thing, I mean, and again, what some of this stuff will fly through and some of this, we, you know, we'll hang on a little bit longer, like we were talking, um, the past year with a lot of people being at home and working at home and having a lot of their relationships with, you know, their ADs or the people that they were buying watches from move into almost a digital only experience. How has that been for all of you? I mean, Rob, how, how has Topper been? Um, I feel that, you know, Topper is a store in Burlingame, California, which is halfway between Palo Alto and San Francisco. We're right in the middle of Silicon Valley. And the good news is you can say that the last 20 years have been preparation for something like this because mm. we've had, we've been incredibly active with watch forums since, you know, the early 2000s. Uh, we, we have an e-com presence. We have, uh, we, you know, we, we, we are used to, to, you know, helping people curate their collections, um, remotely. And that's something that, um, we've been working on for 20 years. So fortunately for us, um, it, it was not nearly as painful a year, even when the store was physically shut down as, as it could have been. And I, I think that we've, we've emerged, um, we've actually emerged from the COVID era as a much more interesting store than when we went into it. Uh, we, I mean, we've added, uh, actually we at Brightling is a new ad for us. Uh, mm -hmm. We added a really high-end independent that's amazing uh, called uh, Chapek. Uh, and I, I feel like we've come out of it stronger. And it's also been incredibly joyful watching people that were completely afraid to walk into any physical space, you know, re-embrace the physical store as well, um, which you've seen more and more of over the last few months. People just so happy, uh, you know, just to be somewhere. So. Yeah. Yeah. And Eric, what about you? I mean, I know primarily most of your, your dealings have been, uh, you know, remotely through, you know, through Instagram and, you know, other social presences, but how has, how has that been? I mean, cause I know at least a friend of mine who's been at home, he's felt like the itch and he's funneled all of his stuff instead of buying wine or whatever, he's buying watches. And he's, I think in the past year, and he, he approved me to say this, uh jason like it, he went from having two watches to about 28 um i mean and they're Amazing. but he's he's ve he's very studying he's he's really really trying to like get into it but like have you seen that kind of happen the same with you yeah no it's been the pandemic you know has been very positive for our family and business you know in the midst of great hardship but um you know typically i was traveling two to four times per month you know, going somewhere to see someone. And, you know, last year after March, I did one trip the whole year. Um, and, uh, it just allowed me to be at home and sell remotely. It's, it's been a way a lot of people have pursued watch collecting as something that it fires their brain a little bit and doing the deep dive and the excitement of buying something, um, versus, you know, 
in the past where all, you know people were moving traveling mm-hmm. vacation business travel people being stuck at home has kind of allowed them to pursue their hobbies in a more intense way yeah so, um it's been incredibly positive for me and there's a lot more watch collectors that are just hungry to buy anything um and really pursuing their interests and pursuing knowledge yeah i mean and that's that kind of leads us to our next segment in terms of like just this rise of new collecting as a whole i mean i think um you know there's there's things that i'm not that big of a fan of like nfts and people collecting pogs and pokemon cards and baseball cards which are great you know i'm sure they had they all have a purpose uh i had my charizard ages ago which apparently is worth like thirty thousand dollars now and i hit my head against the wall all the time thinking about it but watch collectors have just skyrocketed and and i measure that by just the friends of mine who have used to make fun of me for liking watches and are now just like all in um but on that note i know a lot of people are like okay like where do i even start like what do i do am am i supposed to just be like do i get rolex do i get omega like where you know and i'm sure you have a lot of people who also approach you guys asking you that but you know like for Rob, in your perspective, where would you guide someone when they're like, I want to get into watch collecting? I know it's a very broad question, so, you know, humor me. That's always hard to answer a question so broad, but I'll take a stab yeah. at it anyway. Um, so at its core, um, watches are an intersection of, of technology, art, and history. And to me, you should always start with something that sparks the heart and what sparks the heart is the ultimate personal expression. And it's something that I can't decide it for anyone. We can't decide for anyone. Um, I would say I would just, I would start by just looking at the major brands, learning about some of the major stories and just find what interests you. Um, like, um, I think following the, the, I think the most talented writers, um, I think two of the best writers, um, that we have right now in the industry are like James Stacy, Jason Heaton, um, you know, f- take, like, take a classic watch, like the Omega Speedmaster. Um, I would say read James Stacy's deep dive when he did his buyer's guide of like the 3861 caliber Speedmaster, because that like an article like that can be like such a great, like, such a great touchstone to different elements of the hobby that you might find interesting because like an article like that is like 2000 or 3000 incredibly well-written words. And, you know, if, if you're into specs, well, he'll talk about things like the millimeter thickness of a watch. If you're interested into the caliber revolution, he'll hit that. If you're interested in, you know, the fan service that was done by the new release and the way it hit things like the step dial, the, you know, the dot over 90 on the bezel or the, in the way they did the applied logo, you know, it'll hit that. So I would just say, I would start by connecting with writers that you happen, you know, to experience, assuming you enjoy reading things. Um, if you're not that type of person, and you're a bit more of a visual person, go on Instagram and just see what you visually connect with. Um, that's, that's how I would start. Thank you. That's a beautiful answer. Like, because I think the thing is so many people, they just need that like tiny push and where, because I mean, for someone who's been into watches for ages, but is also constantly overwhelmed, 
I mean, I remember I spent almost a thousand dollars on like those Mondani books that were just facts. They're just specs and facts. And I kept trying to figure out like what I was truly into, but I was just overwhelmed. Um, you know, and, and I know a lot of people kind of sit in that, you know, in, in that silo of just being overwhelmed by data and sometimes not knowing what they could appreciate. Um, you know, I mean, Eric, what about you? I mean, Rob had a great, a great perspective. I think for most people, it's, you know, speaking more on the vintage side a little bit. It's like, I just tell people to go look at my Instagram and page through and see what, what jumps out, you know, what watch do you like the most? And then we can discuss it in detail if I haven't written a long description, but um, that's, that's a very good thing. And I think it's for most people, it starts as a visual thing. And then they really pursue the knowledge and reading about it. And um, as Rob said, the great articles, there's so much great content online that wasn't there 10 years ago. You know, when I got into watches, there was just very minimal things online outside of like a few forums and low resolution images, no Instagram, any of that stuff. Yeah. Um, so it's a lot easier and more accessible for people today to get into it. Yeah, I mean, I you know, Eric, the reference points video that you've done that, uh, with Hodinkee, I mean, that's, it's insane. I, I mean, it was super helpful for me, too, because, again, like, I mean, I, I'm coming from, you know, just like going through the Mondani books or just some of the, you know, huge, huge books that are like 30 pounds trying to sift through and understand and like, you know, s seeing some of these videos and more and more folks who have made very clear explanations were like look this is this watch this is why people like it this is you know i mean it, it kind of helps frame it because you know I, I came from cars when i was a lot younger and you know there was always the subtle nuances of of why this car would have been better or they didn't make it this and you know because i think a lot of people also don't aren't completely aware that you know some watch companies their cases from this person, their movements from this person. And then there's histories within those houses that they work with too. I mean, it's, 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 it's pretty special. Um, you know, I mean, on that note, like where did each of you first get into collecting? Uh, I mean, Rob, what about you? Um, I think that I knew I had a special relationship with, with watches, um, you know, I, I've obviously grown up in the family business of Topper, um, but the time that I really, really, I, I can think back on when I first got the bug, it wasn't even about me. It was sort of what I dreamed we would one day sell when, when we were kids, when I was a kid. And so I remember I was on like a trip um, with my dad in like in Europe um, when he was doing some diamond buying. And I, I mean, I remember just having very little interest in actually the diamond buying meetings, which looking back on it, were a freaking cultural fascination of itself, you know, buying sure. diamonds in Antwerp, Belgium. And all I wanted to do was just walk from store to store, just the way this is like, maybe when I'm like 11, 12 years old, I just wanted to walk by store by store, look in the front windows of those European displays and just go, what's that? What's that? Like, you know, in, in our store, I mean, we sold some brands, I mean, that were, you know, that are certainly important brands, you know, back in the, the early 80s, when I when, when I first started getting really interested in this. But, um, but there was just such a, just a 
just a world, just a world out there of stuff I've never seen before. And I just was always interested into it. And as my career, which was not going to be in the family business sort of, you know, went in an educational direction, it was really the only thing that I really wanted to do was get back involved in our family business and get really involved with watches. And, you know, I've had a personal collection grow along the way, but for me, it's like the ultimate job because I get to both try to create the store and have the store be as interesting an experience as possible for people that visit us or people that view us online. And I also get to, you know, create a personal collection of really interesting pieces. So, I mean, I, I, I mean, it's been, it's been something that basically started when I was a kid and it's just, it's never really stopped. It's only gotten worse <laughs> or better. <laughs> yeah. Rob, what's what's one watch that um, to you means more than the rest of the world? Um, that that's that's really hard um, I, to answer uh, because to me there are probably four or five pieces that all have stories. But um, in, in respect of your audience, I will try to answer the question and only tell one. <laughs> um, I would say I would say probably. Probably the num- number one of the first limited edition we ever did for the store, um, which was a, a Nomos Tangente 38 millimeter, which uh, had some custom aspects. And it's uh, and the reason I'm picking that was that was the start of Topper limited editions. You know, it was a 75 piece limited. We didn't. It was celebrating this the anniversary of our store before we really started getting involved in limited editions that were not so much about us, but limited editions that were trying to flush out a theme that we thought would be really enjoyable to the community. And it's incredibly meaningful for me for two reasons. Um, it is. It was you know basically the start of our creative chapter and it was also the watch um that i gave uh my son uh who who uh who uh came into my life when he was eight years old when i married his mother um as his best man's gift so hey there you uh, go so to me that is the that is that is the the most important watch that i can think of because A, it's a touchstone to a moment in my life that's incredibly important and it represents creativity to me. So yeah, uh, that, that's a great answer. Yeah. I mean, because I think awesome. for most people, it's it's something that, you know, like I have a watch that is probably, um, I don't think it's, I think it's a redial. It's a, It's been badly restored. It's not worth anything, basically. I mean, the, the, if I tried to sell it, you know, it wouldn't be anything, but it was like my first, you know, foray into getting watches and getting into it. And so for me, that watch means more than anything else I've ever owned. That's obviously, you know, monetarily worth far more than that. It's, but it's like the experience of it. I mean, Eric, what about you? Yeah. I mean, it's hard to pick one for sure, but, um, you know, I think the Rolex Submariner was sort of the first luxury watch I was ever aware of when I was a kid. Mm. And, uh, I got an incredible example after searching for years that um, from a good friend of mine, um, Paul Altieri. And, uh, you know, that's just, it's just like everything. I was so excited to get it. And, you know, it was just really a cool watch. So it's, it's one of those I, I love. Nice. Nice. 
Um, so I want to jump to some questions from the listeners. This is stuff that people have sent ahead of time. Um, uh, the first thing is on building a collection. So, um, you know, from each of you, I'm curious, what would be three watches that you recommend that are less than 2000 that someone could get into? Um, Rob, you want to go first? Okay. Um, so I would say, um, I'll give a really specific reference number. Um, I would sure. say um, the, the Seiko SPB143, um, that is the modern reinterpretation of, uh, of the 62 Moss. Um, it has the color scheme of the, of the original. It's been flushed out in four or $5,000 uh, limited editions like the SLA 017. I'm sorry, non-watch serial number, non-Seiko lovers, but- No, this is great. This is, this is what people come but here you, for. But you do have a Seiko boys hashtag, so. Yes, that's right. <laughs> uh, so, uh, so uh, like to me, you know, th there is a watch that at $1,200 retail, looks incredible it looks incredibly similar to the watch from the 60s accurate movement sapphire crystal um oh look at you with your yeah, there it is. Like the one looks like an spb 147 if i'm not mistaken yeah yeah, yeah. But a little bit more vintagey touch to it um yeah. but so you know you have one um i mean oh, yeah. to me i mean yes the 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 and, and if you're into it then you can appreciate well wait a minute if I wanted one of the, the limiteds, oh, then I could get an eight series movement instead of a six series. I could get Zeratsu polish, which is a special kind of hand finish that would make it completely distortion free at a slightly higher end. Um, so it, 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 even though it doesn't have every expensive element, it tells the entire story of, of the watch. Um, I, I would say the Zodiac Seawolf. Um, yep. Zodiac, Z Zodiac Seawolf, a brand that's one of the the three watches that came out with a dive watch in 1953. Uh, a watch that has um, a bezel that simulates simulates the the Bakelite uh, bezel era of the 60s that I'm sure Eric knows far more uh, than I do about. But it gives that sort of feeling when you look at the modern ones. It, give, it gives you the feeling. Um, and um, it celebrates, you know, the fantastic colorway of the of the um, of the '60s and '70s, like the most bold colors that were possible. Um, or alternatively, um, you know, I, I love divers, um, so I, at the risk of giving a third diver, I would say, you know, Longines Legend Diver. I mean, that's another one. Internal yeah, bezel, one. Buy, buy, com buy compacts case. Um, they've been experimenting with new materials. They've been experimenting with new colorways. Uh, th those to me are, are the, 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 probably the top three and I won't get into it, but I'd say that the new Hamilton and dramatics are pretty cool too. <laughs> Agreed. Uh, Eric, what about you? Uh, I think, you know, along the Seiko lines, the, the Seiko five sports line, you know, is kind of a good successor of the SKX series, like SKX 007, 009, et cetera. Those are great. You know, they can still be found, even though they're discontinued. Um, the the Nomos models, if you're looking for something a little more dressy, Bauhaus, Art Deco, um, 
on the vintage side, I'm a Volcane Cricket nut. So um, to me, they're some of the coolest watches um, under 2000. And you can even get kind of, if I can cheat and add a fourth, um, like a vintage Omega Seamaster or kind of Omega Genève or these simple kind of 34, 35 millimeter dress style watches, but with screw down case backs from the fifties through the seventies, um, you know, they're often a thousand dollars in that range or a little bit more, but, um, you know, that's just a great watch you can wear every day for someone just getting into it. Yeah. I mean, that, that's a, that's a great one, especially the, the old Omegas. I mean, I think for a lot of people that sometimes like where they start because like the brand is big, there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of easy access points from it and it's not as huge as a, um, you know, dip financially and, you know, into getting yeah. into it. Um, you can even, you can even get an early 2000 Speedmaster automatic for under $2,000, like a yeah. reference number of 351350. uh, occasionally you'll see a 35 one of the data models for around 2000 um yeah. quartz aquateras from the early 2000s there are a lot i love of, quartz aquateras i'll be honest with you. i think they're great <laughs> or you could even and if this is probably more uh more eric's world but even some of those funky like around 2000 styles like the like the the 120 seamaster um, yeah. th th those were cool. Those are all under $2,000 pieces, um, that without much difficulty. Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, uh, and, and Omega, and this is the, this is the most traumatic thing for me. Like it's not <laughs> going to be long until Omegas from the early aughts are not neo vintage, but vintage vintage. If that means that the watches that I started my career at will be vintage watches. God help me. Yeah. Oh my God. That's a good point. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Cause what vintage is like 20 years or so. Right. I mean, it's, it's yeah, roughly that's the technical meaning. <laughs> that's, that's nuts. Wow. Yeah. I remember uh, when I, when I, after I graduated law school and started you know, full-time around 99, 2000, you know, flipping through and memorizing those Omega catalogs. And now they're vintage watches. Good God. <laughs> hey, there you go. <laughs> um, so with the rise of cryptocurrency and new types of investments, do you recommend buying a high-end vintage or new watch and keeping it in the box as in not touching it? Will it appreciate? Do you think it's a good idea? Yeah. Yeah. I'll answer that. Um, that's about as good or bad an idea as the cryptocurrency itself. <laughs> I mean, so a watch in and of its, I mean, I, I promise you that you could buy 30 crypto cryptocurrencies and 28 of them are going to be dogs and two of them, not doges, but dogs. Uh, <laughs> and 28 of them will, will be, uh, you know, losers. And a few of them will be winners. And I'd say, you know, watches are the same way. I mean, if, I mean, there are definite watches where if you do that, you will do well in 10, 20 years. And then there, there are others, um, the majority of which, I mean, it is, you know, watches are ultimately not just for investment. Um, they are to be enjoyed and worn and experienced. And yeah. what's in, and what's valuable and what's collectible it's not up to us. It's, it's, it, we can guess, but it's up to the people of 10, 20 years from now. 
of which we will hopefully still be in the market. Sure, but, sure. I mean, there are a lot of, I mean, there are a lot of great watches that I look at that I think, God, why isn't this more collectible? And people just don't seem to care. And then there, I mean, you'd probably see this in the art world too. I mean, how many famous artists die penniless and then their work is celebrated years later. So yeah. what's going to be hot is going to be up to the future audiences. It's not up to us now. We can, we can just take a guess. Yeah, no, that's a great answer. Eric, what about you? What do you think? Yeah, I will say... A lot of people have that idea of buying current production watches and putting them away. I know people that buy new sport Rolex and just keep them in the box and throw them in the safe. And I tell people, like, it'll probably be fine. But if you go back, I've only ever seen one 1950s sub that was truly unworn. And the reason that they're so valuable is because they were worn so um there's a lot more of unworn ones now and it's kind of like people i used to be into sports cards when i was you know a kid 10 years old you know in the 1990s those were people were buying boxes you know boxes and putting them away oh yeah with anything now but it's like who kept a 1952 tops box you know, unopened. There's only a few, I think, in the world. So that's why they're so valuable, those old cards, because they don't exist. So it's, you know, to me, I, I kind of tell them, you're like the guy putting away 1990s baseball tops cards. They're like worth the cardboard. That's about it. In general, they're not worth much. Um, so I wouldn't be, you know, banking on that. I, I joke, it's like, collecting beanie babies in the 1990s how many people spent tons of money like in the beanie baby hysteria just buying these yeah i mean i i if if i'm permitted to answer i'm definitely with you all on that in the sense that i think there's you know um i think there's a lot of people who have that idea right now oh let me get this and put it away and if if a lot of people have that idea i think there's going to be you know a lot of first edition Tudor Black Bays or whatever that people are going to yeah. try to sell, you know, 20 years from now, which will be like, yes. Okay. You know, I mean, I, I have a first edition Nomos uh, Tangente Neomatic and, you know, I remember uh, I had gotten it and uh, Merlin actually had, had hooked me up with it from, from Nomos. And he was like, you know, if you want, you could put it away and it might be worth something someday. And I was like, yeah, but I, I want to wear it. And he was like, Oh yeah, good idea. <laughs> But it was just like, I, I want to wear the watch, not, yeah. not put it away and like, you know, take it out and, and gawk at it. Um, that's that's a great answer by, by all you guys. Um, we, we have a few few more questions. By the way, Mer, Mer, yes. Merlin, was the, Merlin was the one who helped me design the, the Nomos I talked about. Who, uh, oh, really? Who helped, who helped me design uh, or helped Topper design the, the first Topper edition. So hi, Mer, hi Merlin, awesome. if you're listening. Um, can yeah. I can I can I tell you what not my biggest advice of what not to do because uh, this, this is, because this this I think is something that I'm almost positive is right. So what I see a lot of people do is they walk into the store having obtained a vintage piece and they look at it and, and or they they get, they inherit it and and they think okay, how can I make this piece better? And their immediate desire is to get the scratches out, service the movement, do this, do that, and the other. And 
I think it's important to remember that if you are buying an old watch, let it be a vintage watch. Don't try to pretend that you have a time machine. You walk back into the year the watch was made and try to make the thing look new because then 20 years from now, you'll be looking at this watch and be like, oh, look, it's from 65. And someone in 2021 tried to make the watch look new and totally changed the finish. And yep. you'll, 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 it, it, you'll kill the, what you'll kill a lot of what was special about the piece when it's viewed in the future, because then it will have two moments in time instead of its origin. Yeah, no, that's, that's great advice. Yeah. Never, never touch it. A friend of mine, brought his uh, watch to Rolex recently. And it, it was it was his dad's, I think, Zenith Daytona and brought it to Rolex and Rolex replaced Crown. Uh, I mean, they, they replaced everything. Yeah, that tr- um, tritium dial was unseemly. Get rid of it. <laughs> exactly. And they, they replaced all of it. And when he showed me, I was like, oh, like they didn't give you any of it back. Like they, they didn't tell you. He's like, no, I just, I just gave it to him. And so he lost all of it. Um, and he actually reached out to him seeing if he could get it. And they said, no, like it's, it's been, right. it's been uh, disposed their, their words. So yeah, you know, get it serviced, but don't, Even, don't do anything else. <laughs> and, and Eric, I'm curious what your opinion is of this. I mean, essentially, if you've got a vintage piece that's 20 years old and you're like, uh, it's 13 seconds off. I wish it was a little bit more accurate. If you don't do anything, well, it's still going to be 13 seconds off, probably a year from now, two years from now. So I I just, I would encourage, I mean, isn't sort of just adjusting your expectations to just appreciate it for the vintage thing that it is usually the best course? 110%. And I joke that my personal hell would be being stuck in a Rolex polishing room. (laughs) today because they just grind away on the watches and the buffing wheel (laughs) and i mean if i did an estimate of how many millions of dollars that a single service center destroys per day just in their polishing room um it's it makes me puke so um (laughs) i'm you know trying to educate watchmakers you know watchmakers are just taught to make things new, particularly in the schools in Switzerland. That's fair. Yeah. When I talk to them about like why I like a vintage watch, they're like, but it's so much inferior, you know? And it's like, well, that's kind of the point. And it's it's just something that's so cool. You want to just leave it. And they're like, no, we want to polish it and replace the dial and replace the hand. So it's much more legible and, you know, replace everything. So that it is more like a new watch and, no, you don't want to do that. Yeah. A friend of mine had told me, like trying to relate it to cars. He's like, imagine you have a Model T and it's in great condition. And you said, hey, wouldn't it be great if I put air conditioning in it? Sure. Maybe yeah. the air conditioning is nice, but like it is not a Model T anymore. <laughs> um, exactly. So uh, next question, somewhat of a scandalous question, which at least I, as I've answered, should I ever buy a birth year watch? And do they actually exist? So, so here's a question. Sure. When is, when is a watch born? Is it the year that the movement's made? Is it a year the case is made? Is it the year the movement's put in the case? It, when you're, when you're looking at a brand's archive, is that the, is that when the certificate was issued? Is that when the, I mean, what, what does that mean? Amen. 
So the answer is yes. You should absolutely buy a Berthier watch if it is a story that makes the watch more compelling to you when you look at it. If, Fair. if, if, if you feel, if, if it creates more emotional gravitas, it's probably better to know that it's only an element of it that is actually pertaining to the birth year. But still, I mean, as a, as a, as a, just a grounding influence, I mean, if, if knowing that on a chart somewhere, the movement is your birth year, I mean, that's, that's something. And if it makes sure. the piece more, more interesting, more power to you. Yeah, but, that's that, but, but, but that's what these, that's what watches should be are, 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 are things that allow you to tell a story where the thing becomes greater uh, in some way to you than just, you know, what it is in the abstract, in my opinion. No, that's a, that's a great answer. Um, what, what about you? Eric. Yeah, I no, I agree with that. I mean, I am not a big fan of birthier watches in general for a couple of reasons. One, as Rob said, it's very hard to define what birthier is. Usually it's when it was sold, if you will, for for Rolex and others, because we might have that if it's retained the original papers, which was sometimes years after the watch was made. Yeah, I was um, say those cases those watches sat in the case for a long time. For years. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I've seen nineteen fifty eight watches that weren't sold until nineteen sixty five on Holy a couple of occasions. Yeah. So it's just it's very funky. Um and then um you know I, I also don't like it in general because I would get probably an email a day of someone i want to buy a birthier sub or i want to buy a birthier gmt or that sort of sort of thing and you know both it's hard to date with precision and two these are not people that are collectors they're just trying to check a box Mm. and that's probably the only vintage watch they'll ever have so if i'm gonna engage with them and go down this quest to make 500 dollars that might take an insane amount of time yeah um it's not really worth it because you're hopefully having more transactions with the person in the future. So um, in general, I've pretty much railed against birth year watches. Um, yeah. And, you know, I'd rather people just buy something they like. So I just realized my answer is, is since I don't sell vintage of anyone's birth year, is just transferring an emotional dream nightmare to you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Absolutely. Buy the birth year watch. Let Eric deal with it. <laughs> but you, yeah. Eric, you answer what conception is. <laughs> <laughs> but you have people coming in, you know, a friend of mine, they just had a kid and they went to go buy, they wanted to get a birth year watch for their, for their baby. It's definitely a lot easier to get birth year watches for your kids, though, because then True. at least you can buy it in the birth year. Um, yeah. So yeah. One, one of my most cherished watches that I have is um, a Grand Seiko Kirazuri that is the birth year watch uh, for my daughter, Emma. And I took all of her baby pictures. Uh, I'm actually wear- wearing the, the Kirazuri in all of her three month pictures. Because, oh, that's cool. Because that watch, you know, came out that year. It was very specific to that year. It was at least a limited of that year. 
So yeah, it's a great watch. I, so if you're making a if you're making a watch if you're buying a watch that's celebrating a birth year, I'd consider something that came out that year or is somehow representative of the year the child was born. Um, or you could do what my friend and your friend um, Asher Rapkin does and takes the hottest watch possible and engraves their name on the back of it and the birth date, making it less commercially sellable and making sure that they keep it. Yeah, yeah that's good. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Um, I like buying uh, on eat like when my late night, um, you know, eBay after midnight searches are always like looking for engraved watches of other people. It's like, who is this, you know, major Tom Sweeney, whatever's watch, you know, like, uh, I, you who know, I, was I Francis and, and, and what, and how do I feel about having all of her love on my day? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I love that. I'm like, well, like, I guess it, that love doesn't exist because the watch is, is on eBay. Right. <laughs> <laughs> or her daughter sold Francis's love. Yeah, I guess so. Um, so, a uh, couple more questions. So, what do you all predict the future of watches would be in terms of independent brands? Um, I am a oh, I am a independent watchmaker, and I always feel that I'm never going to be as good as Omega or Seiko. As Omega or Seiko, I guess. What about Rolex too? But yeah, that makes sense. Um, any independent brands you see growing to bigger ones, or that I should keep an eye on. Um, our store is interesting because we have relationships with some of the, the biggest, you know, in terms of market share brands, um, in, in the U S you know, three biggest uh, other, obviously Rolex is the biggest. We're not a Rolex dealer, but we have relationships with Omega Breitling and Grand Seiko, but we also really believe in independent watchmaking and, um, we support, um, you know, we, 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 su we support companies that are on the high end uh, of independence. Um, I, I think there's no, there's no star brighter than, um, H Moser right now. Um, I think, I think we are just touching, um, the beginning of what Moser is going to be. And I would say the thing about, uh, Chopek, um, I think mm, those are yeah, two yeah. companies to watch. Um, you might've seen that, that, the, the Chopek Antarctique. Uh, won the Fertello uh, like NCAA tournament when they when they had all these watches face each other in, in an Instagram <laughs> comp competition. Um, I think I think those are are two in, in incredible brands. Um, I think the important thing is that independents uh, really craft their own narrative story and mm. and, and really just emotionally connect with their audience because there's a huge audience of people that want to support independent watchmakers. And even if, you know, they, they, the watch doesn't have a, a you know, a, 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 a free sprung balance wheel and a silicon hairspring in every aspect that, you know, the companies, uh, the, you know, the vertically integrated companies can, can make, um, they want to be involved and they want to emotionally connect with people that are on a journey with independents or small companies that are on a journey. So I would say, don't try to be those big companies, just tr try to try to just tell your story in the, in the watch as best you can. And I, I think there's definitely a growing market of people 
that will, you know, if you can get the, um, you know, the best writers to tell your story and talk about your creations, you'll find people that are interested. Yeah. Eric, what about you? No, I agree 110%. Um, H. Moser pre-owned watches are really increasing in value as the, the brand does well and people kind of buy them up. They used to be pretty inexpensive on the secondhand market, but now it's they're beginning to go crazy. Um, obviously, I, I think there's something to be said for the solitary watchmaker brand, you know, branding it based on their name, the Philippe Dufour kind mm. of approach. Obviously, his, his watches have gone crazy from, you know, retailing for 60,000 to being 600,000 plus now, the simplicities. Uh, really? Yeah. Jeez Louise. Okay. So, um, so that's, yeah, that, that's like a model, I think, for someone to pursue. And there's guys like JN Shapiro who are making beautiful watches. Obviously, there's Roger Smith, there's FP Jorn, two friends of mine that are young watchmakers. Um, that I hope you can meet sometime, Jeremy and, Rob as well, but uh, Peterman Beda, um, hmm. they're they've really taken off, and it started just with a dream of them start starting their own company, and they already won a GPHG award basically in their first year. Wow. Um, and you know they were two just struggling guys that were literally buying you know all kinds of pre-owned equipment from anywhere they could get it in Switzerland to make watches, and then they've made really beautiful beautiful things that have resonated with people. So, um, yeah, I think it's Chapik as well. I love, um, but yeah, um, great. yeah, I think people are interested in not just having something in the mainstream, but feeling like they're supporting someone, um, and an idea. So just having, being able to tell that story, as Rob said, is critical. Um, as yeah. far as these brands go, in terms of what's hot and in, in in a big way that the market, I think, is different than it was three or four years ago, was when you when you thought about wait time, like I, I, there's a hot watch I want and I'm going to have to wait for it. I feel like it was the Daytona and the Daytona. I mean, I mean, <laughs> so, I mean, today, like almost the entire 2021 collection of, of Moser is completely sold out. Almost all of our brands have watches that aren't even limited editions that have these super, super long lead times. Um, the, people are, are interested in new stories beyond these companies capacity. So mm. I, I, th I think that the, the question asker is, couldn't be in a better time to be an independent watchmaker. Because I, I feel like people want to read and learn about about options and choices more than they ever have before. Yeah, I do know that a lot of people have gotten very into um, Nao Ahida. Yeah, yeah Nao Ahida. Sure. Um, you know, I mean, Mark Cho is a, is a huge huge fan of his. Because um, I mean, I think yeah, they they launched in 2018 and they're all pretty desirable. People have been very very into those those watches, and I mean they're stunning uh but yeah i, I think I, I agree i i mean i love independent watches it's it's just um and i think that the people that are buying those are very discerned uh collectors and fans it's not i don't think it's someone who's like 
I have two thousand dollars. Let me let me go get you know an independent watch. It's 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 always the you know the, the higher end, but uh, you know so there's a good long term relationship that gets established. Um, so last question, but not least, um, do you see more and more people buying watches over the internet? And what services do you all use the most for selling? WhatsApp, Instagram. What services do you guys see yourself using more and more to sell watches digitally? Social media or you know, Telegram, what do you think? Um, well, we have an e-com platform that we use, but yeah. I think that, I think, um, again, I'm going to reference our friend Asher Rapkin again, uh, sure. who's, uh, who's, who's one of the smartest people that I know. And he's, and, and he said, one of the, one of the things that you should try to avoid at all, at all costs, if you're a seller is changing the mode of communication. And sometimes that's not possible. I mean, sometimes we have to, but if somebody reaches out to you on WhatsApp, write back to them on WhatsApp. If somebody writes to you on Instagram, try to respond to them on Instagram. If they're using your mm. store, if they're using, you know, your, your, your chat, try to answer them on your chat. So um, I, I, we try to provide, you know, email, phone, and many different ways that you can communicate with us. And, mm -hmm. you know, and we at least try to, you know, start conversations, how people choose. Um, the future of the way people communicate is probably in a technology that doesn't exist right now. Um, I mean, if, I mean, who would have thought five years ago, we'd be using WhatsApp or Instagram DM talking to people. So I think it's important for us just to be active listeners and always right. be thinking about how do people want to communicate with watch retailers? Um, mm. and just, just to be looking for the next thing and just be creative and, and active and active listeners. And, and the, the answers sort of will present themselves as people's taste change. Because you can get bet that the way people want to communicate, the apps that they'll use, they'll probably change a lot faster than the love of the divers of the 60s. Yeah. Yeah. Eric, what about you? Yeah, for me, I have a website, but the market is so hot, I honestly updated very little in terms of putting stuff up there. So it's purely texting people that I currently you know, our clients looking for things, you know, or, um, Instagram basically mm. are the main platforms I used to sell. Um, and you know, the market is, is very, very hot. So things move pretty quickly. Yeah. Well, gents, that's actually about it in terms of questions. This was awesome. This was super, super good. Like I cannot thank you enough for your time, your candor, your knowledge. Um, you know, how, how can folks get in touch with you? Um, you can visit, um, uh, our website on topperjewelers.com. Uh, every week we do a pre-owned drop every Friday morning. So, uh, you can sign up for our mailer, uh, on, uh, which is on the homepage of our site. Uh, we, we, we launch somewhere between 20 to 40 watches at nine o'clock Pacific time, uh, every Friday. And uh, you can definitely look at us on Instagram where we try to curate the most interesting releases in the industry, things that we think are the most important uh, topper jewelers on Instagram. Eric, what about you? Uh, yeah, I have windvintage.com. You can email me at info at windvintage.com. And then my Instagram is uh, Eric M. Wind. 
uh, M is in Michael. So E-R-I-C-M-W-I-N-D. But gentlemen, again, thank you so, so much for your time. Um, this has been really, really special. And it was, it was super fun. And uh, we're, Thanks, it's an honor being on your show. Thank you. Oh, yeah, of course. All right. Talk to you all soon. Thanks, Jeremy. All right. Thank we'll you. see you. Bye. See you later. Thanks for listening. There are tons of other episodes with watch experts on Blamo. Just dive through the archive. And special thanks to Rob Kaplan of Topper Jewelers. Visit them at topperjewelers.com. That's T-O-P-P-E-R jewelers.com. And Eric Wind of Wind Vintage. Check out windvintage.com. Tag me with your favorite watch online and let us know what you thought of the episode. Happy watch hunting. And remember, there will always be another watch.